All of you on the good earth. One, That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. All right, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 703 for the week of Monday, April 20th, 2015. Um, Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Thanks, Sawyer. Can't wait to get started. This is going to be a real busy one. Oh, yes, it is. Welcome as well, Kat Robinson. Hi, everyone. Great to be back. And welcome as well, Cassie Tamanini, a.k.a. Craftlass. Thanks, Sawyer. This is going to be a good week because, boy, it was a great weekend. (laughs) Oh, yes. We've got a whole lot of the Northeast Astronomy Forum coming up later in the show. But first, we've got a bunch of space news to cover. And while we're at it, let's start with some private space news. First and foremost was the recent launch of CRS-6, which was SpaceX's next resupply mission to the International Space Station. The Falcon 9.1 spacecraft launched successfully on April 14th, 2015 at 4.10 p.m. Eastern Time, which was 2010 UTC. That was successfully berthed to the station a few days later on April 17th. Now, the big thing with this mission, of course, was once again the attempt to land the first stage on a barge in the middle of the ocean. And it got really, really close this time, but didn't quite make it. And if you haven't seen the video, it's quite spectacular. I definitely suggest, if you haven't seen it, to stop what you're doing, pause us, and go have a look. (laughs) This video was phenomenal. It was really the first time we've ever gotten a close-up look at the landing. Uh, The last images that were released from the first attempt were very low-quality, very close-up images from the barge. This was an image taken um, from a, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it was a chase plane that was taken from it. So it's high def quality video and it shows the landing attempt in detail that really impressed me. Uh, When I first heard about the failed attempt, I was like, oh yeah, sure you were close. Okay. Um, Because I'm a little skeptical just by nature. Anyone says that. But when (laughs) I saw the video, I immediately had a lot more just confidence that they're really going to pull this off and they're going to pull it off soon. Um, You see the first stage come down, slow down, land pretty softly or what looks like a pretty soft landing. And then it just it just tips and it just has too much lateral velocity uh, and it's just unable to stay, uh, to stay afloat. And it's kind of a really slow tip before it tips over and then unfortunately the rocket explodes. But really just a fantastic try. And when you see it, you know, if you had any doubt, you'll really, really see it and think, wow, SpaceX is going to do this. It's not going to be too long before they have, you know, a workable, reusable rocket, which is great news for the space industry because that's really going to cut the cost down. 
Well, from a logistics standpoint, uh, NASA was really, really wanting to get this one off the ground. The Orb 3 uh, disaster kind of let that on. They were a little short logistics-wise. They always like to have a cushion of a few, I think, believe the cushion was about maybe six months or so. Cushion was a little dwindled because of the Orb 3 uh, failure. But this uh, SpaceX launch went ahead and gave them a, a much better margin. I believe there was about maybe 4,300 pounds of uh, logistics and science experiments going up there. There's some uh, two phar- local pharmaceutical companies here in New Jersey, I believe Merck and Novartis, also had some pharmaceutical experiments going on this particular vessel. And, and some uh, replacement, some replacement experiments for. For those that were lost in the Orb 3 as well, which right. is really exciting. That's true. And also the Planetary Resources Group had their first satellite launched into Earth orbit. This is a test satellite. This is also something that was lost on the uh, Antares explosion, but uh, SpaceX went ahead and delivered that satellite successfully. So from a logistics standpoint, the ISS is in a much better position now than it was uh, before uh, CRS six launched, so to me the the real objective of the mission, you know, I mean, grant you for the company, the objective was to see if this first stage was actually recoverable or not, and I'll agree with you there. They are on the cusp of doing that. I'm just about as skeptical as as you are, there, Cat, with uh, with all of this, but um, I'm just going to have to see if they think this reusability option is going to work. I'm still on the yeah, fence on that say, one. I think it is going to work. I, I think for my personal skepticism was on kind of somewhat of the ambitious time frame. But after seeing this, and I have to give a shout out and a thank you to all those Kerbal Space Program uh, <laughs> players out there who then chimed in with a lot of technical terms about what was firing and what they thought. It was really interesting to see to see all those KSP players chime in on, on after seeing this video and, and really giving a great insight that is not always provided by SpaceX media-wise. Yeah, they, they, yep. uh, yeah I, I have to agree with you there. Uh, first off, if you haven't played Kerbal Space Program, go get it. It's the most educational waste of time you're ever going to have, and I, I really recommend you pick it up. <laughs> The uh, yeah, I mean, I'm serious. Moving right along, I'm still on the fence. I mean, I remember shuttle with reusability and so on. Now, grant you, shuttle was a much more sophisticated beast than the Dragon is, and or the Falcon booster is. And it also really depends on how fast you can go ahead and turn around that booster and get it back on the pad. So again, I'm I'm going to applaud SpaceX here for at least trying something new. And, and shaking things up a little bit, because without them, I, I think we'd still kind of be afraid or kind of timid to do certain things. And with respect, they have been shaking up the playing field. And because of that, I think other companies are willing to go ahead and lay some money out on the line and do some innovation, do some new stuff. I mean, they've gone ahead and they've shaken up Ariane Space with Ariane 6 now coming online and its design. And the old salts like uh, United Launch Alliance, they too are throwing in their hat into a, a new booster, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. 
In fact, how about we get ready to jump into that? I do just want to add, going back to the whole Kerbal Space Program thing, I do have to throw in a shout-out to Twitch streamer Das Valdez, who did it about 20 times the other night on stream and who is a regular listener of the show. So, <laughs> Yeah, and i got to thank, thank a good friend of mine, uh, Anthony Fitch, who uh, also kind of introduced me to that program back in 2012. And uh, he's now a newly commissioned uh, officer in, uh, I want to say, the Air Force. So, um, Anthony, again, congratulations, but, uh, and also thank you for introducing me to this complete and off-the-wall waste of time, but God, you learn a lot, and it's, it's more than just a game. It's really, really an educational tool, so go get it, guys. Well, if we're doing shout-outs, I have to do my shout-out to Doug Ellison and Scott Manley, who are the two I'm often seeing Kerbal Space Program things from, so thank you guys <laughs> For letting me watch all your stuff and get some rocket education based on your KSD. <laughs> yeah, Doug's the man. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Scott Manley, EJSA, the whole uh, Kerbal Space Academy, KSP TV. There's a, a lot of great people out there that are worth watching. And if you haven't checked out the game, get it. The official full 1.0 release comes out Monday, April 27th, 2015. But anyway, while we're talking about new releases or full releases, whatever you want to call them, United Launch Alliance has made an announcement regarding their next generation launch system, which will not be called NGLS. Instead, <laughs> they have decided to name it Vulcan. That's right, Vulcan. And if you're doing the Vulcan salute, well then all the power to you out there, because <laughs> I think you're pretty cool by doing that. But the new launch system is ULA's basically next step after the Atlas and Delta rockets. It will also have a few stages. They are planning on including a smart technology, and when I say smart, that is the Sensible Modular Autonomous Return Technology Initiative. Yes, that's actually an acronym, <laughs> which will be used to try and recover part of the first stage, specifically the booster main engines by shutting them off mid-flight. And most importantly of this announcement, in my opinion at least, is that they will no longer be relying on the Russian-made RD-180 engines and instead will be using the BE-4s provided by Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin. Yeah, they've, they're still keeping, by the way, the Aerojet Rockendyne uh, AR-1s in their pocket as a backup should the BE-4s not be ready. So that's that's one other announcement that came out of that. They're not totally abandoning Aerojet Rockendyne, at least not yet. I think there's going to be some sort of competition, but I think within about 18 months of the announcement, they're going to finally make a final decision on the engine vendor. I think that they're going to open it up uh, for competitive bidding between the two and see who wins. But hands-on favorite, really, is the Jeff Bezos Blue Origin BE4 engine. One of the other things that I kind of thought was kind of interesting was the capture method for the engines. They're hoping to go ahead and grab these things in, in mid-flight almost while they're being recovered. A helicopter is going to go ahead and grapple these guys while they're kind of coming down to Earth. And, and the first thing that popped into my head, if our listeners recall, was the, the Genesis mission and how that came back. And we kind of missed <laughs> picking that up. And, of course, it caused damage to the return capsule and may have contaminated some of the samples in there. But we still managed to get some science out of it. My thought on this, again, they're trying some new things. And I don't think Vulcan would be around, honestly, if it weren't for the way SpaceX seems to be shaking up the market. I've also noticed, too, that United Launch Alliance, who kind of really took a back door to things, they like being quiet, they like being in the background, and not so much anymore. They're making a lot of noise. I think 
they are sort of coming around and saying, okay, fine, SpaceX, you're not the only one that can make a lot of noise, so can we. And they're trying to beat SpaceX at their own game, because keep in mind, these rockets are not just for the military, and they're not just going to be for NASA. They're going to be for commercial use. So they're going to be going after each other with all guns blaring. I should go ahead and mention the name Vulcan. It was selected not by uh, United Launch Alliance, but by popular vote. And I kind of wonder, had the passing of Leonard Nimoy not happened, if another name was selected. There's a Another company, by the way, that goes by that name that is kind of contesting that, and we'll see if they're able to go ahead and get past any type of trademark issues or anything like that. I think a bunch of trademark attorneys need jobs, and that's one of the reasons why this lawsuit's been launched, or at least the threat of one. I just want to say I voted for Vulcan an embarrassingly high number of times. (laughs) Uh, so I was really glad when it got picked because then I felt completely justified for just sitting there and click, 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 which is not something I would normally do and definitely not something I would admit to. But since it won, <laughs> I feel I'm safe. If Vulcan hadn't won, I probably would have been like, eh, I don't need to tell any women I voted for it like 20,000 times while avoiding work. But no, no, no. <laughs> I, will, I will admit I voted for Eagle. But uh, that's okay. You know. At least it wasn't Colbert that won. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> live right. long and rock it. Yeah. Oh, that's a yes. Good, that's a good slogan. That's a real good slogan. ULA. If you want to use it, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. More power to them. I hope uh, things go well with the vehicle development. I know they are working with both the United States Air Force right now and uh, the National Reconnaissance Office to go ahead and certify the vehicle for uh, U.S. Air Force and uh, national security flights. They did say that during the press conference they had when this was announced that some lessons were learned from the SpaceX-USAF debacle, and they're going to take those lessons and watch that and try to avoid the same pratfalls that uh, SpaceX kind of fell into. So hopefully the certification for Vulcan will be a little bit smoother than uh, for Falcon. So that's something we're just going to have to watch. But that certification process is in work. And speaking of certification processes for SpaceX, I believe that that is still on track for the summer. So again, just we'll keep an eye on that. Exactly. And while we're speaking on certification processes, obviously Orbital Sciences has been working to get their spacecraft back up and running. But in the meantime, they have a resupply contract to fulfill. And they are in the process of getting ready to launch their next resupply mission aboard an Atlas V rocket. Not one of their own, but that is currently scheduled and on track for November. And apparently we also have a few reports, some of them possibly conflicting, coming out about what may have caused their last explosion. During the NASA press conferences for the SpaceX CRS-6 launch, there was some questions about where Orbital Sciences, or should I say Orbital ATK was. It's going to be tough. I've been calling them Orbital Sciences for years, and now I'm going to have to have to get used to it. But for Orbital ATK and where they were with the recovery process, not only for, uh, for Cygnus, but also for Antares. And it looks like they are having no trouble at all marrying the Cygnus to the Atlas V booster. As you know, They've done that before with other NASA spacecraft, and they've done that before with other other vessels they built, just to 
you know, real fast deal. They built uh, the Dawn uh, probe, and they've built a few other satellites of note, and they've also flown on Atlas V. So there has been absolutely no issue whatsoever with marrying Cygnus to Atlas V. It looks like it fits like a glove, and they are absolutely on track for a launch in November. Believe there was an announcement last week by uh, Ron Grabb, who's a former shuttle astronaut. Uh, he is now uh, with Orbital ATK, and it looks like he was indicating that the final report will say that a worn bearing was the responsible culprit in the engine uh, that may have caused the explosion which took out uh, the Orb 3 vehicle, which was named after uh, Donald K. Slayton or Deke Slayton. That was destined for the ISS back in October uh, 28th of uh, 2014. GenCorp, who's the parent company of Aerojet Rocketdyne, they had some other thoughts on that matter, and they're saying that possibly there was some debris caught in the engine somewhere that may have been the cause of the accident. Now, NASA is doing their own internal investigation. That's an investigation whose results will not be made public. But I'm sure they're going to be the final arbitrator in all of this. This is going to turn into a he said, she said. I think somebody is trying to avoid a phone call from a bunch of attorneys. And that's what we're seeing here. Uh, it should be interesting to see how that whole thing plays out because I think it might become a template for incidences like this in the future. So we'll just have to watch and see how this whole thing turns out. But uh, all in all, it looks like Cygnus is on track for November, and repairs are continuing over at Wallops Island, over at the Mid-Atlantic Regional Spaceport on Pad 0A. I believe there was an article today that indicated that $5 million of the $20 million that NASA had released for refurbishing Pad 0A has been received and it's being put to work. So right now there are no constraints that anybody can see that would prevent Pad 0A from being ready by first quarter of 2016. But we'll just have to watch that too and see if everything goes the way it should should go. As people will know in technology, things are not exactly uh, paved road. There are always bumps here and there that prevent launch and or prevent uh, things from happening. But again, it looks like Pad 0A may be back in commission by first quarter of 2016. So we're keeping our fingers crossed on that. be nice to see launches out of Wallops again. Indeed, they had a few sounding rockets actually launch recently. I believe uh, within the last week they had at least one sounding rocket, which isn't like a really big rocket, but still a rocket launch out of there. Yeah, that was carrying a whole bunch of student experiments. I believe that was supposed to fly in March, but due to weather constraints, it was held on the ground and uh, finally got off the ground and hats off to them. I hope uh, students get the data they were looking for. Exactly. But their next planned attempt for Orb 4 is November 19th, 2015. That's, of course, very tentative since we're talking way in the future. And if it is not ready in time, Orbital does have an option for one more launch on an Atlas V, if need be. That's correct, Sawyer. The contract that they signed with the uh, United Launch Alliance gives them one Atlas V core with an option for a second if they need it. But I have a strange feeling Antares is going to be back on the pad sometime at least 
by the end of first quarter 2016. That's just my thought, but we'll have to watch. I hope so. Indeed, we'll all be watching because we've got a little bit of time to wait, so we'll be keeping our eye on that. So now on to NASA news. If you recall a while back, there was that whole thing, oh my gosh, NASA bombed the moon, which, spoiler alert, they did not. They intentionally crashed Elcross, a spacecraft, into it to learn science. Well, now NASA is going to bomb Mercury, or should I say, not bomb Mercury, but crash another spacecraft into it. And that is the Messenger spacecraft, as its life as a spacecraft has pretty much ended as it runs out of fuel. And their plan now is to crash it into the first planet in our solar system. Am I correct on that? You absolutely are. They are doing their last maneuver to, in order to keep it afloat for a few more days on Friday, this Friday on the 24th, and it's expected to crash going, and I apologize, I don't have the metric one because they didn't do it that way, and I didn't do the conversion myself, but um, <laughs> over 8,000 miles, close to 9,000 miles an hour into the surface of Mercury. Unfortunately, it's going to happen on the sun side, they think, so we're not going to be able to observe the impact. But Messenger has been doing some pretty phenomenal things. It was launched in 2004 and traveled over six years and had to get several gravity assists in order to get into orbit at Mercury. Uh, orbital insertion was in 2011 on March 18th. And ever since then, has been sending back some pretty phenomenal science and letting us know the innermost planet in a way that we've never been able to study before. In fact, letting us know uh, such things that Mercury probably has quite an abundance of ice water locked in its impact craters. Also, lots of dark organic material probably deposited near the beginning of our formation of our solar system when things are very violent, lots of objects crashing into each other. And as comets go towards the sun and pass by, Mercury is often uh, hit by meteor showers. And another thing outside of the, the science and information we're learning about Mercury, what's really exciting is the technology that has been advanced because of this. The Messenger mm -hmm. spacecraft actually had a sunshade. So because the mission was so close to the sun, in order for the spacecraft to survive and, and be productive for as long as it was, it needed to have protection from the sun. So it actually included in its payload a sunshade that routinely experienced temperatures in excess of 300 degrees Celsius. Um, and I'm quoting that directly from NASA's latest press release on Messenger. And it really made it able to be able to complete its mission. And then just... In the tradition of NASA's planetary science mission, Messenger has also long outlasted its prime mission. It was originally scheduled for a prime mission of one Earth year, and it has outlasted that. Um, by the time it crashes into the surface of the planet, Mercury, around April 30th, it will have completed about four years and one month. So it's gone... Over seven Mercury solar days and over four years in orbit. So something that's really fantastic, a really great mission, another star in, in NASA's collection of, of really phenomenal planetary missions. And, and the things that we learned from this mission will definitely be useful for both building spacecraft in the future and also for future planetary science. So really fantastic and definitely 
has deserved its permanent rest on the planet. Yeah, it's it's a darn shame we're not really going to know, at least until the Bepi Colombo mission comes by. I, Isa, I'm sure, will make trying to find Messenger's final resting place a possible target when it gets to Mercury. But uh, yeah, hats off to everybody involved in the mission. An amazing job, and, and as uh, Messenger itself sings its final swan song, I'm sure the data, however, that Messenger has sent back will still be taken quite a while to sift through. Oh, yes, indeed. And I believe, actually, we covered its orbital insertion back in 2011 when it first got there. Uh, It was launched back in August of 2004, though, and so it's had quite the long mission. So it's been at Mercury since March of 2011, observing it all of that time, and it has served quite well for the scientific community. So hats off to NASA there. And I will just throw in one bad joke here. What's the similarity between Facebook and NASA? They both have messengers that crash. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> Where's my bad call, Brett? <laughs> I have been months. It has been months since I've done a terrible joke on this show. It uh. had to be done. I'm sorry. <laughs> Plus, I didn't have a transition into the next story, so this works. <laughs> uh, take five, I'll recover from that one. So, speaking of terrible transitions, Pluto. <laughs> <laughs> Last week, we discussed that New Horizons, the mission to Pluto, would be making its close encounter very shortly later this year, and that we'd be getting the first pictures back from it in color within the next week. And sure enough, we did. And they are gorgeously blurry-ish, but they have colors, and scientists are already getting a lot from them. Yeah, you have to remember, Sawyer, too, these images are not really for the science team. These images are actually for the navigation team. These are situational awareness images that are taken of the system to find out just what the spacecraft is heading into so folks can figure out, all right, how are we going to navigate this thing? You have to remember, we're talking about trying to get this vehicle, which is about the size of a grand piano, I believe, through the system, at a, and it's moving at about, if I hope everybody's sitting down for this one, 36,000 miles an hour, and that's how fast this thing has has been chugging along. So you've got to figure out how you're going to go ahead and weed this thing in through the system. And in the process, you have to understand what you're getting yourself into and how you're going to navigate the spacecraft through. And these images are going to provide the navigation team that kind of data. But I'm sure, Sawyer, as you pointed out, the scientific community is looking at this and going, whoa. So everybody's taking bets on what color Pluto actually really is. Yeah, because not only was Pluto image, but you can also see Sharon, one of the moons of Pluto, in that image, too. And it's actually, again, it's blurry, but it's pretty cool. And if you've seen, people are starting to make renderings now, better quality renderings, considering that prior to this, the best images that we had of Pluto were from Hubble, and those were surprisingly not very good. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, one of the things, and uh, Cassie, you and I are going to talk about this a little later when we get into the, when we get into Neve. These images, this is the first time since I believe the Voyager missions that we're seeing one of these bodies, you know, one of these far off bodies in the outer solar system for the first time. 
And that's kind of an exciting deal. I mean, we haven't gone through this process probably since, oh, 1989 when, uh, when Voyager whipped by, uh, by Neptune. So this is going to be an exciting summer. This is one of those chances where when people say, what has NASA done new lately? You get to really impress them. <laughs> That's very true. We're not, as, as uh, Bill Gerstenmeier said, we're not exactly out of business. So we'll get into that a little later when we talk about the Northeast Astronomy Forum. Why wait? We've covered a whole bunch of news. And in case you were not aware, this weekend in Suffern, New York, was the Northeast Astronomy Forum. If you're not aware of what NEF is, as it's called, we've been there for the last five years or so, us Talking Space members, as part of the NEF Posse, thanks to the beauty <laughs> of Twitter. It is hosted by the Rockland Astronomy Club in Rockland County, New York. And it is the largest astronomy expo, apparently, in the world, according to their website. Uh, if nothing else, they've had some pretty big-name speakers. Last year, it was Neil deGrasse Tyson. A few years before that, it was the Pluto killer himself, which I find interesting because of our Pluto discussion. And this year, it was Bill Gerstenmeier. So, and actually, uh, last, last year's featured speaker, or the keynote speaker, was Alan Stern of New Horizons, and who is also a fan of Pluto being a planet. So <laughs> it was extra interesting that it went from Mike Brown, and then last year you had Alan Stern, who, of course, is the principal investigator on New Horizons. And then this year they actually continued with talking about New Horizons with Dr. Green, which we will talk about later as he was the keynote of the entire event. For people who haven't been to NEF or don't exactly know what it is, I was actually not there this year for the first time in five years, so... Can you explain to people what NEF is? Sure. It's basically a combination of... It's, it's a gathering of amateur astronomers, first and foremost. It's a place to look at the latest and greatest in gear, to buy everything from eyepieces to telescopes to carrying cases at the best prices you're going to get them at all year, to see some really beautiful handmade telescopes, which you don't get to see too often, also, they have some amazing speakers all day, like two days solid packed with speakers. And actually, the two days before NEF begins, it's the Northeast Astro Imaging Conference, which is also two days packed with amazing speakers, specifically for the Astrophotography Club. It's essentially nirvana for anybody that's involved in astronomy, whether you're a professional or amateur. That's the best way I can put it. I call it telescope porn. It's my annual dose <laughs> of telescope porn. That's one, way of, that's one way of looking at it, yeah. We should also mention the Solar Star Party, which happens every year out on the quad between buildings outside the Rockland Fieldhouse. This year it was dedicated to the memory of Barlow Bob, who has always been a part of the Solar Star Party at Neef. And this year it featured, I'm not quite sure how many telescopes but there was a nice field full of them right yeah. Gene? yeah in fact uh, when i walked up in at uh, i guess about 11 11 30 uh in the morning on the first day out there in the quad the, that was like almost wall-to-wall -wall telescopes out there you know the and wall-to-wall -wall people yeah looking through them which was really great to see because i i don't know about you but no matter how much i read about the sun or i learn about the sun or look at the sun, every time I look, it just absolutely blows me away to see all the things going on on there. 
every time without fail. Yeah, the, the the really cool part there, Cassie, I don't know what it was like when you were out there, but the really cool part for me was looking out the quad and seeing a lot of kids. Tons at of the, kids. Yeah, looking out at the solar telescopes out there. That was just... Uh, I noticed that you noticed actually that? they have a kids' corner set up inside with like crafts and projects that kids can use to learn. And I didn't see any kids in that section. They were all outside looking through telescopes. Yeah, that was kind of the, the neat thing. So to me... Well, we were lucky to have good weather. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, Saturday was just a tease, so to speak, uh, as far as the weather was concerned. It was magnificent. It was a wonderful day to go ahead and, and do some solar astronomy. And believe me, with the handful of uh, scopes that were out there... And the people that were just clamoring, trying to get on them, that was really, really gratifying to see. But the really gratifying thing was the youngsters. I saw a lot of them this year, and that kind of made me feel pretty good because usually the demographic is usually around the you know, the 50, 60-year-olds and so on. But the, there was a different... It was a different vibe this year, I think. Yeah, uh, a lot more families. Yeah, I, I saw that. So that was... That was really, really, really gratifying to see. So I'm hoping that some of those families brought back some telescopes for their kids and making time to go outside and use them and rather than sitting on the video game consoles or, or in front of the boob tube, they're out there uh, looking at uh, the majesty that is the night sky. So hopefully it's gotten a few more people into the hobby, which if more amateur astronomers are born out of this, then great. And if a few professionals are born even better. So there's lots of telescopes and other cool things there. Do you guys see anything unique on the floor that's new maybe from past years? Because I know like before they've had birds, they've got different telescopes, different viewing things and seats and crazy stuff. Yeah, I miss those owls, Sawyer. They weren't there, but Cassie, you've got something up your sleeve you want to go ahead and talk about. It's a, a new product that one of the vendors had out there, and uh, I know you're yeah. chomping up a bit to talk about it. Yeah, it's a very unique product. This was, you know, every year you get a lot of the same vendors and sometimes they have some new products, but, you know, usually it's like a new eyepiece or whatever it is that they make. Well, Denkmeyer had something a little extra intriguing this year. It was a set of eyepieces. I wish I could remember the model name. I can't off the top of my head. I tried to look on their website. It's not on their website yet. It's coming out soon. But there, it's eyepieces that go on any bino viewer, and it essentially turns your telescope view into 3D. It manipulates the image using the same principles that our very own eyes and brain use. It fools us into thinking that we're actually seeing the distances between things. And the idea is that when we look through a telescope, we see essentially a flat image. It's 2D to us. And so this brings it to life. And they're hoping that this could be used well in things like outreach and sidewalk astronomy because when you know how it is if you've ever done sidewalk astronomy, people look through and they kind of don't understand what they're looking at and they don't or they don't understand that some of the stars are say, in the Milky Way, and then another object is much further away. They don't really grasp that. You have to talk a lot to explain it. Well, with this, with a twist of the eyepiece, you can actually make the stars that are right in our own galaxy appear closer than 
the thing that's more distant. They're particularly good on open clusters, they said. Yeah, I kind of wish I stopped by and saw that. Unfortunately, I did not. <laughs> um, well, it was cool because they actually hung a star field with a few different sample images up on the wall, way up in the... This takes place inside a gymnasium. So, and it was cool because you actually got a chance to look at, you know, while obviously not the real night sky... It's about the best you could do, considering you're indoors and it's the middle of the day. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. It looked amazing, though. It truly looked amazing. And these will be coming out soon. As I said, in case anybody's interested, they're from Denkmeyer. And their website is denkmeyer.com, D-E-N-K-M-E-I-E-R.com. Definitely something interesting to look at. Now, of course got to talk about the speakers. Who are some of the speakers this year? And give us some highlights. First off, the two keynote speakers were from NASA, but they were just absolutely amazing. And we'll get to that in a sec. But one of the speakers was a gentleman by the name of Matt Penn, who is the chief telescope scientist over at the uh, Peak Observatory. He was plugging a little bit of a project that he is trying to do. Now, in... The world of science is, you know, budgets are kind of thin and you can't get the manpower you need to go ahead and do science and so on. In fact, he gave the example of 30 scientists being flown out to a remote island to go ahead and study a, a total solar eclipse in 1965. And those budgets and those kind of science endeavors are really, really few and far between these days. And uh, the need to go ahead and, and try to get uh, grants for things is just so almost impossible. So uh, instead of trying to send about maybe 30 people into one little area to study a total eclipse, which is coming, by the way, here in the United States in 2017, and it's pretty much going to be covering the entire country, the idea Dr. Penn has is to station... 61 volunteers along the line of totality to go ahead and photograph the sun during the time of, of totality. And he figures you're going to get about maybe about a 90-minute movie compared with all of this. The problem is you need 61 people with identical telescopes and, yes, identical CCD imaging equipment. How the heck are you going to do that? Well, they're looking for volunteers. And the nice part about this is if you go ahead and volunteer, you get to keep the telescope. Now, keep in mind, this is not just an everyday kind of clunky telescope. This is almost a $2,700 instrument. And if anybody's interested in signing up, the URL, and we'll put this in the show notes, is sites dot google dot com forward slash site forward slash citizen kate experiment so i again i will go ahead and give that to the folks setting up the show notes this week which will probably be me anyway and uh we'll make sure that uh, information gets out to y'all so if you're interested in signing up and really want to be part of this give it a shot sign up and if you're selected, you'll get yourself a $2,700 telescope 
and be able to go ahead and contribute to solar astronomy. The catch is, by the way, if you do get selected for this, they may call upon you again to do further uh, citizen science projects, but I have a feeling with this particular audience, knowing the way they are, I don't think they'd mind getting selected for a lot of citizen science projects. I know I wouldn't, that's for sure. Uh, so that was just one of the speakers there. There were some folks over there from uh, the OSIRIS-REx mission. As you know, this is NASA's uh, mission to uh, go to an asteroid called Bennu. And uh, that launches, I believe, and somebody can correct me on this one, but, but I, I think they want to get this one off in uh, 2018. The idea between the OSIRIS-REx mission is to bring back a sample of an asteroid. And they intend to do this by just doing a slight little deep dive and just picking up some dust from that and then just delivering the dust back to Earth. There are some ways, too, that you can get involved in the project. You could go ahead and... Uh, hunt for asteroids and help some professional asteroid hunters out. Uh, there's a way to get involved there. And also, the team is looking for OSIRIS-REx ambassadors, meaning that uh, you would be given some educational materials and you could go out to schools and to civic groups and give talks on what the mission is and what it hopes to accomplish. If you folks are interested in learning more about that, I'll give you the URL here. It is www.asteroidmission.org forward slash get dash involved forward slash. Again, this is something else I will go ahead and give out in the show notes this week. But that's another mission that uh, they're trying to drum up and uh, hopefully we'll get some folks interested in that. There's a local organization here in the New York area called uh, the Boldly Go Institute. You've heard of crowdsourcing, uh, trying to get, uh, say, a satellite going. I know that the Sentinel mission is trying to do that with an asteroid hunter spacecraft. Well, the Boldly Go Institute is trying to go ahead and get a an orbital telescope out there that amateur astronomers, universities, anybody can really lease out time on and do whatever kind of studies they want to do. The trouble is right now, I believe the total cost of the mission is going to be something along the lines, when all is said and done, of about a half a billion dollars. But they are trying to go ahead and get some benefactors with some deep pockets involved, but they also need you know, every dime they can get to get this particular telescope off the ground. Now, the good thing about this particular telescope is it's going to have some of the instrumentation that we're going to lose on Hubble. That's not to say that this is going to be, you know, the Hubble telescope Mark II, but it will have some of the uh, experiments that Hubble had on board that we're going to lose, basically, when Hubble gets decommissioned and, unfortunately, falls uh, safely, most likely, into the Indian Ocean. So, if you're interested, the website is boldlygo.org, and uh, visit them and learn more about the Astro One Telescope. It's called that right now. It might be called something else if they get a, a benefactor that wants to name the telescope after a loved one or after themselves, say. 
But if you want to go ahead and add your uh, hard-earned cash to this project, you can. They just got their 501c designation this past week, so they're trying to get organized and so on with their pitches. But uh, so far, so good with the way this project's moving. The gentleman that's in charge is a gentleman by the name of Dr. John Morris. He is a former member, a former director, I'm sorry, of astrophysics in the science mission directorate at NASA headquarters and was a senior science policy analyst over at the White House. And now he is leading up the charge here and looking at who else they have on the board. They have none other than former astronaut Dr. Scott Parazinski, also part of this. So this isn't Mars One, gang. This is this is a legitimate shot at trying to get an orbital platform that amateur astronomers, by the way, can use. So if you're into amateur astronomy and think you have a hankering to go ahead and try to use a, an orbiting telescope, this might be your big chance. Well, why don't we get right back into the keynote speakers, and one of them for Saturday was none other than NASA's Bill Gerstenmaier, who is NASA's Associate Administrator for Human Spaceflight. Uh, he's no stranger to this audience, that's for sure. And his discussion uh, was the last for, for Saturday, and it was just a work of art. He did discuss a little bit about uh, the whole journey to Mars that NASA is undergoing. And he wanted to stress that this is a journey. This isn't a mission. This isn't something with a with a set timetable. Like we have to be on the moon, say, by the end of the decade, and that's that. This isn't about flags and footprints. It's about honest to God, sustainable exploration. And he was also saying too. He was kind of trying to tell folks that we still have a lot of work to do with Mars. We still have a lot of homework to do with Mars. Uh, he said he kind of laughs at people saying that we're ready to go to Mars today. That's just simply not the case. The examples he gave were pharmaceuticals. How, what is the shelf life for pharmaceuticals? If you have, a, have an accident or if you need uh, somebody gets ill en route to Mars, what do you do? And do you, are your pharmaceuticals going to stay fresh for the entire one-year mission? Don't know yet. Uh, and we don't have a way to preserve pharmaceuticals, so we need to go ahead and figure that one out. Another thing, another example he gave was food. Can we grow our own food? Can we keep freeze-dried food fresh? I'll bet you dollars to donuts that astronauts will probably not want to go ahead and eat freeze-dried food the entire mission. So you have to go ahead and give them options. These are just some of the examples he gave, but there's a few others out there too. Uh, so in the interest of time, we'll press. But, um, Cassie, the, the next speaker was, for Sunday, uh, the keynote speaker there was NASA's Jim Green. And we had some FaceTime with Dr. Green on the floor, which, uh, again, Dr. Green is probably one of the more fantastic individuals you ever want to meet. And in fact, he was gracious enough to allow the entire team that we were hanging around with to have a group shot. And by the way, he gave his camera to his handler told his handler to go ahead, take a group shot with him too. So he's got that same photograph that we all do, which kind of tells you a little bit more about the man. Again, very gracious individual, and he gave a fantastic talk, both about Dawn and about New Horizons and what they both want to teach us 
about the origins of the solar system. And again, he stressed during his talk that DAWN is not an acronym. Usually NASA is a world loaded with acronyms. This is not an acronym, folks. This is really talking about the dawn of the solar system and how it was formed and really learning more about the early solar system and where we came from and where life may have originated from. So that's really, really the purpose of dawn. And with Ceres, we're actually really looking at an honest-to-God protoplanet. So we are really trying to unlock the secrets of the early solar system. Cassie, you could probably go ahead and talk a little bit more about that speech. I've been, I've been monopolizing the time here a little too much. Well, I didn't get to see uh, Gerstenmeier's speech, unfortunately, so I'm glad you got to talk about it. But what really says, I think, says everything about Dr. Green, as well as him being so gracious to all of us, was almost every person in our group who is live tweeting said... I want to grow up and be a planetary scientist now, <laughs> which I think says a lot about how much he gripped us as a speaker. But anyway, with Dawn, now we're about to enter into that RC3 orbit this week. Right. So we're going to be getting a lot more information from Dawn in the coming weeks, which will be extra exciting. And we got to see a few pictures that I believe are now released to the public, right, Gene? They were released yesterday morning, I believe. That's correct, and we got to see them before anybody else did, which was kind of cool. But uh, One of the advantages of going to Neef. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but then he started talking about New Horizons, which New Horizons, now I didn't realize, I know that it's been on this long, dangerous journey and that it was going as close as it is to Pluto. But now that we have discovered... All of these moons around Pluto, we also suspect that there is a lot of really small debris. And what I found most interesting is we could get all the way to Pluto and have a tiny dust particle wreck the whole mission. Yeah. That's just absolutely mind-blowing. Yeah, one, one hit can just absolutely ruin your whole day in, in this instance. And that's and one of the reasons why they're taking a lot of navigational images, and that's why Sawyer, again, as I was explaining before, this is all situational awareness stuff. Well, and the thing is, they didn't know so much of this about Pluto. When, out, when New Horizons actually launched, they only knew about Sharon. It was just Pluto and Sharon, and they didn't know about this potential dust field that they suspect might be surrounding Pluto. So it's interesting because this spacecraft wasn't necessarily perfectly designed for where it's going because we didn't really know anything about where it's going. And we still have so much more to learn. And it's an incredible mission for all of those reasons. You know, obviously Pluto has been a controversial subject for a while. What I'm really hoping is that New Horizons, when it actually gets out to Pluto on July 14th, that it starts sparking a whole new type of conversation about Pluto. Yeah, I think it will. Uh, but what Jim Green was saying, that he wants to do some comparative planetary science between both Ceres and Pluto and see what the similarities are, but also what the differences are. And between those two, we should really get a pretty good sense of what the early solar system was like and how it might have been formed, and where we may be going. 
and that's really, really the exciting part. I have to laugh. There was a small child that asked a question, what was essentially his favorite mission, Dawn or New Horizons? And Jim Green, <laughs> Jim Green paused for a moment, and he said... I like both of my children equally. So. <laughs> Actually, I believe he said I like all of my children yes, equally. Yes, <laughs> exactly. I don't think he would sing, single out either Dawn or New Horizons or any of the other many planetary missions that his department is in charge of. Exactly. <laughs> Which I thought was kind of fun. <laughs> don't forget, he doesn't only have two missions out there. We've got Juno arriving next year. We've got it's it's a very exciting time in planetary science. We're doing all kinds of things we've never done before. Plus, of course, Messenger that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, and one of the things to just go back to Bill Gerstenmeyer's talk, he gets these questions about NASA being out of business. And I could kind of relate to that because I get that too during a lot of my outreach stuff and I just pull out my iPad and say, oh, not so fast there, Sparky. And I go through the entire litany of what's going on. I'm going to touch on this just really quick. This again was a little bit of news from the Gerstenmeyer talk. He really, really emphasized the future of using cislunar space as a possible jump-off point for Mars. And also this moves into the asteroid redirect mission where he feels that using ARM and cislunar space, we could probably learn how to manage large bodies in lunar orbit. And the idea, too, is, is using that vicinity as a jump-off point or even a, you know, sort of an embarkation point for going to Mars. And there was some little controversy here and there about uh, uh, using uh, the moon or actually conducting a landing on the moon possibly in conjunction with Mars. And there was a little controversy, I believe my friend Eric Berger over at the Eastern Chronicle was talking about this in a past couple of weeks ago, about having to do a lunar landing as a Mars component. Bill Gerstenmeier said during the speech, he doesn't think we need to land there. But you kind of get the feeling there was a little bit of wiggle room there. But he's kind of saying, too, that he doesn't think right now, at least, that we need to do a lunar landing. So I'm not sure that, that a landing is, is in the the quiver there as far as getting to Mars, but we'll just have to keep that door open. But that was really one of the one of the other things that came out of the Gerstenmeyer speech. Sounds like a lot of great stuff out of both of those speakers, and it seems like there's a lot of information in all those talks. So I can almost guarantee you, based off of the great people that were there, you can probably recap almost all of it through Twitter. So be sure to check out hashtag Neef2015, as well as hashtag NeefPosse, that's N-E-A-F-P-O-S-S-E. Bet you can find a whole bunch of tweets and pictures and great information to fill in all the little gaps, because we only had a short amount of time to cover some amazing speeches from what I've heard. And I'd also like to give a little shout out um, because, you know, when we started going to this, we this is how we got to know the meteorite men who have, of course, been on this show. Jeff Nockin's been on this show several times. I'd like to say thank you, Jeff, for driving up. He drove up last minute for a couple of hours. He was in New York City. And so we got to spend some time. He and Steve Arnold spent some time with us, talked to us about their new TV show, which we should probably talk about at some point in the future. And that was really exciting to have him back and have him come hang out with Gene and I. And so, hi, Jeff. 
Yep, and I'm just going to give a real quick shout out to the 15 people that we were hanging around with. Folks, you know who you are. I, I kind of wish we had time to mention you all. We, they were more than 15, so yeah. that would be a lot of time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, you folks are, are probably really, really just amazing, and, and thanks for, for sharing the experience with all of us. As I said, our group grows every year. The first year we went, I think there were five or six of us there. Yeah, uh, that's correct. Three of them on this call. Yep. <laughs> and now we're at about 30 people, and yeah. somehow it has never lost its intimacy or its fun, and I think everybody who's listening out there, you should come join us next year and just get on Twitter and tweet at the Neve Posse. Come join us and have some fun. And learn exactly. a lot. Fun and fact, learn a lot. <laughs> and learn a ton, yeah. Fun fact, today's recording date is exactly five years since the first Neef posse. So. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Wow, I didn't know that. Cool. <laughs> I, I just found out through Facebook, uh, even after the terrible <laughs> joke I made earlier. <laughs> but yes, Neef is a great event. It's just outside of New York City, so if you want an excuse to come to New York and meet up with a bunch of great space people and meet a bunch of the team at Talking Space, there's always next year. And with that, that just about brings this episode to its conclusion. Unfortunately, we do have to end this show on a bit of a somber note after the passing of one of the community. Thanks, Sawyer. Uh, I have have the sad duty to report through uh, Shannon Moore, who's basically become sort of the NASA social den mother, if you will, that uh, Jan Duran, one of the earlier folks that really, really supported our activities here in Talking Space, passed away on uh, Friday, April 17. She was a grand school teacher, a wonderful educator. Uh, She was a grand amateur geologist. She loved paleontology. She loved dinosaurs. But she also had a passion for space exploration and wanted to go ahead and transmit that passion to everyone she met. She also had a heart of gold. Just her gentleness and her generosity basically knew no depth and no no demarcation line. And uh, if it weren't for her, I don't think the STS-129 event would have been as fond of a, a memory as it was. She had opened up her timeshare that she had in Florida to about maybe six of us, me included, and it was something I really wasn't expecting. It was thanks to her that the trip happened, and I was glad to run into her again uh, when we toured the uh, the Johnson Space Flight Center about a year later. Once more, just a class act, and the world is diminished without her. So, Jan, thank you. It doesn't seem to be enough or adequate. Uh, you were a wonderful teacher, and I just only hope I was a good student and able to go ahead and use what you taught me. So, again, Jan, good tailwinds, and see you on the other side. I only met her once, but she was a very kind, gracious person from when I met her at STS-130, the times I spoke with her online as well. Just a all-around great person, and it is quite the loss. Mark Radman is out doing his first robotics program, but I know he wanted to send a message as well. I just wanted to add a few thoughts about Rock Teacher Jan. I'll be using Twitter handles because otherwise I get confused as to which is which. But it's certainly sad to hear that Rock Teacher Jan is no longer with us. I'm looking at a picture from 2010 at uh, Margaritaville. It's been mentioned here and there online that uh, a few of us got together after the STO 
launch and uh, a shuttle launch and met there. And I'm looking at some smiling faces, Rock Teacher Jan included. There's Astro Evie, Travelholic, Shimster, myself, my wife Mary Andromeda, Craftless, and Catherine Q, and of course the NASA men. And it's great to see the smiles and to remember the excitement of getting together that night, the, uh, the amount of fun that it was, and there's just no shortage of things to talk about, and it ended way too soon. So cheers all around. Remember the good times. Remember the memories that we have of each other. Let's forge new relationships as we go, and let each day, each time we get together, be something memorable, something positive, and something that we appreciate for days to come. And she was a, a call-in guest here on this program at one point. If uh, you go back and look at the Save NASA episode from our first season, she was one of the call-in folks So when we experimented with a call-in format. So if anybody's interested, they can go back in our archives and take a look at that. And actually, I believe the last time I saw her was with Sawyer. We were all down for, he was down for STS-130, and then I came down for Solar Dynamics Observatory, or STO. Yeah, she was And we all went out to dinner one night, and it's funny, uh, one of my most precious memories is this whole group of people singing Sweet Caroline <laughs> along with a cover band at the top of our lungs. And um, and all dancing around that table. And, you know, that's exactly how I'm going to remember Jan, was hanging out with her friends and singing and, you know, being flush with that after-launch glow. And she was an incredibly special person, and uh, we're going to really miss her. Exactly. And I think we're going to leave it at that. Thank you for joining us, Jean, Cassie, Kat, and the listeners as well. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are.